share with you this morning. <clears throat> I really felt like um, there are stories from, from the scriptures that are kind of trapped in our minds, maybe in a particular, um, a particular box labeled Sunday school, right? Just like, like the video we just watched. Um, and so I really felt like I, I needed to repent, and I really feel like this is God's heart this morning, is that we would encounter his, his text and really see what he was doing um, when he was doing it, and, and encounter just the richness and, 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 the, and the weight uh, of what he did uh, for us 2,000 years ago. So this, this month at, at Dayspring, our, our theme has been the good news uh, of great joy. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, let's start at the beginning uh, by kind of addressing what that even means. Uh, William Tyndale, uh, when he translated the uh, original texts into English, used the Greek word evangelion to mean good news. All right? The word gospel is actually derived from the word God spell, which means God's story. So, so what is that? Right? What, is, what is the good news? What is God's story? As it turns out, it depends on who you ask. Right? If I asked that at large to this audience, I'd probably get as many different answers as there are people here. Uh, Sam Chan in his book, Evangelism in a Skeptical Age, suggests there's at least three places you could look uh, to find out what the gospel is, and you're going to get three different answers. According to the New Testament writers, they might say it's something to the effect of uh, it's a story about Jesus Christ that we access through the scriptures, which demands a response of faith and obedience and brings salvation. Right? It's communicated to believers and non-believers alike. I'm sharing this morning the gospel. I'm evangelizing those of you who are saved and those who are not saved. If I share my testimony, I'm sharing an example of what God did in my life. Right? If you ask theologians, right, and theology is not a, not a curse word, right? it just means what we know about God. So the people that study to learn more about God, they might say that the gospel is that God created us. We have sinned against God. Right? The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus saves us from our punishment, right? Jesus didn't take my place. The Bible says that he became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God, right? The wages of sin is death. A wage is something that's earned and has to be paid, okay? And so now that we know this, we have a decision to make. If you ask a storyteller, Timothy Keller is used here as an example, you might say something in the effect of it's, it's about a manger, a cross, and a king, right? All of these are correct, and they're all versions of the gospel. For our purposes, however, today, we're going to use something a little more succinct. I actually like John Harrigan's uh, description, definition of the gospel, and he suggests that it's really two halves of a whole, two halves of a whole concept. That is that Jesus came, and he is coming again, based on the realities of the cross and his return, right? So for today, for our purposes this morning, the gospel, the good news, God's story, is that Jesus died for our sins so that we can live forever, right? If the first part, first part doesn't happen, we don't get the second part, right? The second part doesn't happen in a vacuum, okay? So what is this great joy then? How are we to understand this great joy? Well, on a very basic level, there's a, there's a distinct difference between happiness and joy, all right? The word happy actually appears probably about six or less times depending on the interpretation of the Bible that you're, that you're reading, all right? And it's, it's generally speaking an emotion, it's temporary, and it's externally motivated, right? When I was preparing for this, you kind of get, the message gets stuck in your head, and I'm talking to my daughter, and I'm putting her to bed, and I'm like, you know what makes you happy? Kitties, right? hot chocolate, right? That's, that's not inaccurate. You know, if you ask me, I'd be like, like I don't know, Taco Bell. Um, <laughs> until it doesn't, right? Um, 
but joy, joy is, is functionally different, right? Joy is a state or condition, okay? It's constant, lasting. It's internally motivated, right? And, and the value we can see placed on that word, that term, can be seen in the fact that it's used more than 60 times in the New Testament, right? More than 10 times of happiness. The lyrics of the song go like this. Everything fell to pieces when my eyes met yours in that hospital gown. And the dreams we once were dreaming that we held so close seemed impossible now. And all the plans we had for the future and all the memories from the past, the world I once knew was in a cardboard box in the lobby lost and found. Hallelujah, nevertheless, was a song that pain couldn't destroy. Hallelujah, nevertheless, you're my joy invincible, joy invincible joy. Joy is lasting. So, I'm going to put these all, all these things together. Make sure we got the... No slides. All right. All right. So, to put this all together, the good news that Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I can live forever establishes a constant, lasting joy in my life. There we go. Let's all, let's all say this together. All right? Ready? The good news that Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I can live forever establishes a constant, lasting joy in my life. Amen. 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 So how, do we, how does this good news transition to great joy? I think this good news inspires great joy because it is for all people, right? When I was saved, when I was born again, is the, actual, the actuality of it. When I was born again, I just remember like trying to reflect on the old me, right, who had died merely days before, and just thinking, like, really? Like, like me? Like, have you met me? You know? Like, he did this for me? And, and I had this, just this, this sense of my own sin in comparison to God and, and how different and how disparate that was and realizing that he literally came for all people. But God is a good God and he doesn't just say, I'm for all people. He shows us. He does it before Paul even goes to the Gentiles, right? He does that starting in the Gospels. So let's go to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. It says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now, nearby is nearby to Bethlehem, okay? Bethlehem is about six miles west of Jerusalem. Now, there's some uh, stories and, and things going around that, um, that these were the shepherds that raised the ceremonial lambs for, uh, for sacrifices. There's nothing in the text that supports that, uh, nor do we have any historical documents, but it's entirely possible, right? Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, right? Angel means messenger, I know we have images in our head of this thing with big wings, but there's nothing here that tells us that that happened. Okay, Jesus, when he ascended, didn't put on wings to go to heaven. Just throwing that out there. Okay, so this is a messenger of the Lord. That's all we know. And he appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified, right? They weren't inquisitive. They weren't like, that's new, right? This is an angel of the Lord, and the glory shone around them, and they were terrified by response. It's a typical response when something from the heavenly realm pops into the earthly realm. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, because if you're an angel and you go to angel school, they're like, as soon as you appear, they're going to get really, really freaked out. So you have to say this, right? This guy graduated top of his class, or gal, we don't know. 
He says, do not be afraid. I bring you what good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Right? It's a very unspecific term, all. Right? Verse 11. Today in the town of David. Where's the town of David? It's Bethlehem. How do we know that? Well, because we have the book. Okay? But the town of Bethlehem would have been a very localized term. Okay? So what God is doing is he's establishing through this just initial interaction with the shepherds that he knows them and he knows about them. Okay? So in the town of David, it was called the town of David because David is from Bethlehem. If you go to the Old Testament, that's where uh, I, uh, Samuel goes to anoint him. A sa- okay, this is, keep in mind what this is right here. This is the birth announcement of the Savior of the world. This is the birth announcement for Emmanuel. God has come to live among us. Okay? And so there are three key things that are about to be said in this one verse. Three, three massive implications for every one of us sitting here right now. Right? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. All right? I could preach a whole message on this probably, but Jesus came to be at least two things for each and every one of us. He came to be our Savior, and he came to be our Lord. And most of us are really cool with the Savior part, but the Lord part is what we have a lot of trouble with. Okay. It took me 35 years to bow my knee. Not bragging. It's not braggable. Right? The other piece, though, is that he is the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. He is the one who's been predicted. He's been prophesied. He's the guy you're looking for. Verse 12. Verse 12 is, is so important and so powerful and so key to what is about to take place. And we, we cannot miss verse 12, okay? It's, it's, very, it's overwhelming because when, when, when Jesus, when God says, I'm here for all people, this is, this is, this is it, okay? You have to understand who the angel of the Lord is speaking to, okay? He's in a field speaking to shepherds that probably didn't look unlike the, the people in the first video, okay? Now, shepherds were of, of low birth. They were low on the social status as far as as far as their culture was concerned, okay? Ju- Ju- Judaism, excuse me, the Jewish people this time, they were a text-bound culture, right? Their, their lives were inextricably bound to the Torah and to their religious texts, right? That's what they followed. It was extremely, uh, everything was about tradition and, and, and status, etc. okay? The, so the shepherds are at the low, low end of the totem pole, right, so to speak. Based on the rabbinic texts that we have, we have, we have, three of the five rabbinic texts that we have that are in existence that discuss cleanliness when it comes to occupations, in three of the five, shepherds are referred to as unclean. Okay? Like, this is, this is a big, big, big deal, okay? But that's the religious text. God didn't say that. That's not in your Old Testament, that shepherds are unclean. The, the religious leaders and teachers of this time had determined and decided that these people... Were, were an unclean profession. Now, why did they do that? Well, one of the main reasons was that, that shepherds do the nature of their work were, were rarely, if ever, like at religious events. They were rarely at, at festivals. Uh, they rarely went to synagogue. And so these people were, the shepherds were really vilified by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, okay? This is who, like, <laughs> that's crazy. Like, God is announcing his birth to literally the lowest of the law of his chosen people. Like, this is major, right? Verse 12, this will be assigned to you, right? This isn't like, this is the Savior's here. This is you, shepherds. This is assigned to you, right? Because listen, sorry. If verse 12 isn't here, 
then the shepherds don't go. The shepherds aren't going to go to their fellow Jews' house and and cause them to become impure by their presence. He says, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths just like you wrap your children, right? And lying in a manger, right? A manger isn't some like crazy thing, right? Jesus wasn't born in a barn. He wasn't born in a stable. He wasn't born in a cave. He was born in a common Jewish home. All right, Jewish homes had between one and two mangers in them. They would have them near the entrance. So when their animals would bring, come in at night, they would tie them off. And in the morning, they would take them back out. Right? A manger would either have been portable or dug into the, the floor. Okay? So it was almost like a bassinet. You just fill it with fresh straw, and then you swaddle your child, which is what all peasants did, and then they would place their babies in. Okay? So the angel is saying, the Savior of the world is here, Messiah is here, and he's on your level. He's, he's on your level. He's just like you. He's no different, okay? If this doesn't happen, shepherds don't go, all right? But, he, but it's in here because God knows, him, knows them, and the message is literally for all people, right? But he's not done explaining that, okay? Let's flip over to Matthew, starting in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I told you I need these tissues, man. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea during the time of King Herod, all right, so this is King Herod the Great. All right, Herod's going to have three sons. Uh, after he dies, the territory will be split into three of them. But this is Herod the Great. Okay, Herod is a big deal. He's, he's reigned for, for decades. He, is, uh, he was not born Jewish, right, but he converts to Judaism. So Herod is literally the king of the Jews. Right? It's an important, important note. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. In this text, for me, this is the, probably one of the most underrated, underimportant texts. Right? These guys didn't just jump in a car and and get some gas that come and go, grab coffee and come over here, okay? Whatever God chose to show them was so impactful, it, showed, it so captured their minds and their hearts that they determined that they were going to travel however, however great a distance it took to get to wherever they had to go, okay? At a minimum, these guys traveled 500 miles, probably more in the thousands. Some scholars believe it, they, they came from the area that we now know as China, all right. If they left when, when the star appeared, it means, means they would have been traveling for about two years. Okay. This wasn't three guys looking nice on camels. Okay. You don't travel the roads at this time without an armed escort. So they would have had an armed escort. They would have had servants. They would have an entourage. These are men of means. These are men of wealth. These are men of, of measure. Okay. They're not like, you know, some... They're not some chumps, okay? These, are, these, are, these, are, these guys were a big deal wherever they came from. And, and the author of creation chose to reveal himself to them in a specific way that they would understand. That they would understand, right? So they came to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a major trade city. Three guys on camels aren't going to get the attention of the king of the Jews, okay? This is a large group of people. And, and if you travel two years and spent considerable wealth to find something, you would make sure that you found it, right? So they're making a, making a big, big ruckus. And they said, who is, where's, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Now, the Jewish people believed in prophecy, but they believed most of it was a lot of false prophecy since the time of, of Micah, because that's what they'd heard. There was a lot of charlatans that, that moved around the area and claimed to be this and claimed to be that. Um, but, but kings, monarchs, when they heard uh, omens, when they heard different um, 
different prophecies that dealt with their reign coming to an end or someone taking over their throne, they, they tended to pay attention. Right? So Herod is disturbed. Jerusalem is disturbed with him because they're like, wait, is this Messiah? Who is this? Verse 4, when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was born. Now we know from Josephus, who was a historian that lived around the time of Jesus, that King Herod had, had killed the entire previous Sanhedrin. Right? So these guys were in his pocket, and when he called, they came and they answered. Right? So verse 5, they say, In Bethlehem and Judea, please don't kill us. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Fascinating. Jesus is predicted to be born in Bethlehem 400 years prior. The Bible is the only primary religious text in existence that contains fulfilled prophecy. Right? It's the greatest selling book of all time for a reason. Right? Joseph is from Nazareth. Jesus is predicted to be a Nazarene. Right? Joseph is from Nazareth. And oh, by the way, there's a, there's a census that takes Joseph to Bethlehem, to the town of his birth, back to where his family lives, right when Jesus is ready to be born. 400 years ago, that was predicted. Amazing. All right. Next verse, verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Why doesn't, why doesn't he send people then? You ever wonder that? I mean, I don't know. I, I, two, two, two thoughts, right? One, I think it was the status and the means and measure of the, of the Magi. Right? These guys weren't, weren't some, again, they were, they were, they were well-to-do individuals who seemed very convinced and what they were looking for. Two, I think we need to take history into, into account, right? This, this time and place, so Jesus came in the fullness of time. Jesus came in the perfect time for the gospel to spread throughout the world, right? Because this was, this was what we call Pax Romana. This is the peace of Rome era, right? So Rome has put down all of these, you know, little warring groups all over the place. And so the roads are safer to travel in that region, right? I think Herod does this because he doesn't want to start something, right? He doesn't want to start something with, with wherever the Magi came from. He's trying to hold the peace, at least for now. But he gets the information that he needs anyway. Starting in verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose ahead of them, went ahead of them, excuse me, until it stopped over the place where the child was. So if you traveled for two years to find something, you showed up to Jerusalem, because that's where the king is, right? Shouldn't that be where the king of the Jews is born? Right? You show up and they're like, ah, he's not here. I think you would be pretty overjoyed when you came out the next gate and you saw the star overhead. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Thank God we didn't waste two years of our lives. <laughs> Verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Right? Some scholars submit that they worshipped him as they would a god. Because he was. Then they opened their treasures. That's an amazing word. They opened their treasures, their wealth, and they presented him with golds, gifts of gold and of frankincense and myrrh. These gifts were commensurate with a rank of someone who is a king. Right? These are, these are king-level gifts. Like Conservatively, this is hundreds of days' wages for a man like Joseph. This is hundreds of days' wages. These are not, these are not trinkets. These are, these are important gifts. Right? So in, with only two groups of people, with only two groups of people that visited Jesus around the time of his birth, God demonstrates that he is for 
all people, that Jesus has come for all people, from, from Jews, his people, to the Gentiles, right? From, from the unclean to the clean, right? From, from, the, from the learned to the, to the ignorant, from the, from the uneducated to the educated, and, and moreover, like, pantheistic pagans, okay? If, if, you are, if you have ever worried or wondered if God has come, if Jesus came to save you, the, answer, the short answer is yes, Right? It doesn't matter where you are in that social spectrum. He's come for you. Right? So the good news inspires great joy because it is for all people. But I think also this good news inspires great joy because it reveals our value. It reveals my value. And Jesus does that through costly love, through costly grace. What is the value of something? How do you determine its value? Dan Muller said this one time, I think. He said that the value of any one thing is no more and no less that someone else is willing to pay for it, right? On a, on, a, on, a, on a worldly level, right, a natural level, how much is a human life worth, right? If you ask someone, right? Most people would just say, say priceless, okay? I never, I never saw this, and I don't really hope to see it again. I never saw this in, in action, in, in, in play, so to speak, um, more, more realistically than in 2018. I was stationed on board the USS John C. Stennis aircraft carrier, as we were preparing to deploy, and um, on this night in particular, we were in the western edge of the San Diego operating area, 50 plus miles away from shore, and um, I was a staff tactical action officer, so I was the guy who made sure that all the ships are, are where they're supposed to be. It's kind of like herding cats, but with like billion dollar warships, or similar, <laughs> similar to that, um, sadly. Um, and uh, and I, I got a call from one of our ships, one of the lieutenants, uh, and he informed me that one of their sailors didn't show up to watch on time. And they'd begun man overboard procedures. Over the next nearly four days, uh, I participated in a, the largest scale search and rescue effort that I've ever seen. Tens of thousands of man hours, tens of thousands of dollars in diesel fuel and jet fuel for helicopters and fixed wing aircrafts as we circled and searched the ocean for one single human life because we have not been able to put a price on our life. And yet, God did that. He established our value, your value and my value. When I was born again in 2012, I remember that Christmas we sang Christmas carols, and you know how you sing a song, and then you sing it again, and it's like you never heard it before? A song, O Holy Night. The lyrics say, O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Oh, man, that's big, that's heavy. It's one thing for God to say you're valuable. It's one thing to say I, I treasure you, I love you, you know, I'm, a, I'm a good father. It's another thing for him to show you that you're worth his son. And this, the value of you and me, is all, it's the same. the same. Anybody outside these walls, we all hold the same value to our Lord. The good news inspires great joy because it reveals our value through costly love. And by doing so, it transforms our entire life. It transforms our entire life. Jesus does this before he even goes to the cross. He does it numerous times from Scripture. But I want us to, to go back to one of those those children's stories in Luke 19, starting in verse 1. 
This is towards the end of Jesus' life, where he's on his way, like literally on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his disciples. And then after that, to be glorified. It says Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So Jesus is entering Jericho. Now, we have to take ourselves and put ourselves in the, in, the, in the historical, cultural time and place and space. So Jesus is a traveling prophet, right? He speaks for God. He's a rabbi, teacher, and many believe he's the Messiah at this point, okay? So he's walking into this town, and people didn't have Netflix back then, so they just hung out, you know, and they talked to each other. So most of the people would hang out by the city gate. So there's a group, there's people by the city gate and people just hanging outside. So Jesus comes into Jericho and his, his intention is to pass through. Jericho is about 15 and a half miles east of Jerusalem. Okay? So he's traveling west, he's walking through the town, and, and naturally, because he's Jesus, he's like a minor celebrity, a, a crowd gathers. Okay? So people would have, whether gathered around, gathered around him, it, it was considered to bring honor to a town or a city when, when a, a rabbi or teacher of note resided there or stayed there with them, okay? So they would have most likely asked him to stay there, you know, Rabbi, stay with us, teach us, have a meal, you know, you, you may stay at my home, this kind of thing, all right? And again, I'm reading a little bit into it, but this is historical, historical context. So Jesus is passing through. Verse 2, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. All right, so the way it worked was Rome would take a census, and the census determined how many people were in an area. Okay? Then Rome would, would inform the chief tax collectors how much they needed to collect from the people. Right? Then the tax collectors would, would bump that, that up a little bit, depending on how much they wanted to make, and they would, they would give some extra to their, their tax collectors who worked for them. They would keep some for themselves, and they would pay the Roman soldiers who were enforcing the taxation. All right? Excuse me. So this is who Zacchaeus was. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. If you read further in your scriptures, you'll find that whenever they're talked about, it usually says tax collectors and sinners because tax collectors were considered worse than sinners. And the reason is because tax collectors were Jewish. The Rome, Rome used the Jews' own people to help them collect taxes, which wasn't bad, but it was, it was how the tax collectors did it and how they were lining their own pockets. So the tax collectors were considered collaborators. Right? They, were, they were considered to be collaborating with the Romans. Okay? So they were the most hated people in society. Right? Jews didn't like sinners. They liked tax collectors even less. This is who Zacchaeus is. This is really his identity at this point. <clears throat> Verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Right? So there's a large crowd. This isn't like you know, two, three, or four people. This is, this is a significant number of people. Ten to twenty people are surrounding Jesus as he's walking probably slowly through answering questions. He's not like, get out of here, i got a Passover to get to. Um, so they're, they're all talking and moving slowly. Zacchaeus sees where he's going, verse 4, so he ran ahead. Jewish men wouldn't be caught dead running in public. Okay, They wouldn't, they wouldn't be caught dead running in public. So how do we explain this? Sycamore fig trees are generally planted not anywhere closer than about 75 feet from any city wall. Right? They're large trees, so they're, they're planted outside the city. So Jesus is walking through the city, and he's going to transit down a road. Zacchaeus sees this, understands this, so he goes outside, and when no one can see him, he runs and climbs up this sycamore fig tree. He's probably hoping that the crowd will have dispersed by the time Jesus gets to where, where he's kind of stashed himself. Right? So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Right? Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot... All right, so... 
Jesus is transiting with a crowd. There's a large group of people. What do you think you would think if you're walking up there, right? Because what Jesus can see, everybody else can see. So if you get to a tree and you see your every, everybody's neighborhood, favorite neighborhood tax collector sitting in a tree, like staring down at you, what do you think the people are going to say? They're not going to say nice things. They're not going to be like, hey, there's our, there's our boy Zacchaeus, right? So you have, I have to imagine that, that not nice things are being said in Zacchaeus' direction, right? There's that tax collector, right? Probably talks about how, how not tall he is, right? Collaborator, like any number of, of horrible, hateful things are, are being said. Zacchaeus can't see who's saying them, right? So they're free to, to speak their minds to some degree. But Jesus, right? When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Okay. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So realize what is going on right here. Okay. This is, again, this is a major Jesus moment. So here we have this tax collector who is hated. Right? Jesus is standing on the ground, surrounded by people who love him, and respect him. Okay. And Jesus looks up at this tax collector. And now he didn't say, I'm going to come... come to your house. He says, I'm going to come stay at your house. I require lodging. So literally what, what he is saying is, I've just walked through this town and told him my intention was not to stay here. I'm going to go back into this town with the most hated person in the town, and I'm going to stay there. That's what he's saying, right? So what he has done, what he has done functionally is he's taken all the anger, all the hate, all the rage of the crowd around him that's focused on Zacchaeus, and he has redirected it on himself. He has redirected it upon himself. Costly love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, costly love can only be reciprocated with costly love. To this point in his life, Zacchaeus has found his value in material things. He has found his value in money. He has found his value in possessions. Right? And Jesus, who, who he doesn't even know, who owes him nothing, shows him the, the costliest of grace. Jesus, Jesus destroys his reputation in the middle of that crowd for a man that is hated. Right? So, what is, it, so, so how, what is Zacchaeus' response? Verse 6, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Verse 7, all the people saw this. <clears throat> and begin to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Right? Now, if you're the master of a house, it's tradition that you would stand up and give a speech um, at, the, at the banquet. So Zacchaeus is a, has a banquet for Jesus in his honor. And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Crazy transition. What happened between, between, the, tree, between the tree and his house? All of a sudden, the things that he has held on so tightly that identified him, right, that made him feel important, are now worth nothing to him. Right? I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount, right? As a skeptic, you know, you read this and be like, yeah, but is he really changed? Here's your answer. Verse 9, Jesus, whose Hebrew name means God is salvation, said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham, just like Jesus, just like the people outside who hated Zacchaeus, this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's go over this together. Let's say this out loud. You ready? Got it. Here we go. 
the good news that Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I can live forever establishes a constant, lasting joy in my life. One more. I have this joy because he came for me of all people. I have tremendous value to my heavenly father, and this truth has transformed my entire life. Amen. I, uh, I really have the urge to, uh, to end on that note. Except that when I, uh, when I was born again, <clears throat> I, just, I just had this, uh, this weight that made me ask, what now? Because costly love can only be reciprocated with costly love. And I, I'd spent 20 plus years in the military building, building my castle, right? Building my, my ego, building my career. Um, and... I'm not disparaging anything that I did in the military. I'm just talking about my motives. And so I, I decided and determined that I was going to lay down my crown and uh, retire to pursue whatever it was that God had for me in ministry. I don't know. I still don't know what that looks like exactly, but, but I'm, I'm moving forward. And I say that to say that if I have this joy in my life, if my life has been transformed, there is, I have no right to keep it to myself. Right. I have no right to keep it to myself. My, my father was in, is in ministry for 40 years. He was a campus minister, and then he pastored his own church. And he was talking to me about a year ago, and we were talking about evangelism. And he said, Jason, the hardest thing as a pastor, the hardest thing, was 40 years of experience, 40 years, the hardest thing to do is to get people to tell other people about Jesus. That's the hardest thing to do. How is that? How is it? That's the hardest thing to do, to share the joy, the lasting joy that I have. How is that the hardest thing to do? I, I'm concerned, just as I observe where we are right now, with our level of distraction, with our level of distraction by, by the elections. It's not that there's not an importance to them, by the, the virus Right? It's not that there's not importance to that. But that's, that's distraction. It's all taking away our focus from Jesus' mission. Jesus didn't come here for, to just hang out. Okay? He came here to transform lives, to then win souls for the kingdom. It's right there on the wall, reaching his world. Steve Wilson preached about it several months ago. Our, our mission, the mission of God is to spread his glory throughout the earth. We carry that inside of us. And so we transition and, and, and we use costly love. Jesus shows us how. That's an that's evangelism model. Costly love, costly grace. It's going to cost you something to win souls. It's going to cost your reputation. It's going to cost, cost your time, your talent, or your treasures. Probably at least one, if not more, of those things. In the case of the apostles, it costs them their lives. But it's worth it. The joy is worth it. So I, I want to I close now. If you, if, you need, if you need prayer for any, anything, any kind of physical healing, if we get the ministry teams to come forward. If you've never bowed your knee to him as Savior and Lord, right? I'm talking about the Lord part. The hardest decision you'll ever make is surrender. Trust me, 35 years, man. It's a rough, it's a rough walk till then. But if you need that, if you've, never, if you've never bowed your knee to him as Lord, then today is the perfect day to do it. Now is the time.
right? But I'd like to pray over us just, just to, to pray against distraction and to pray against a, re, a reunited, a refocusing, a singular eye, if you will, for God's, God's mission, which is, which is to restore his family, right? Michael Heiser says this about spiritual warfare. He says, he says the hostile forces who battle against us, they, their greatest fear, their greatest fear is the end of days. Their greatest fear is the end of days. It's written in scripture, right? They fear the end of days when they will be tormented. They know it's coming. He said, so spiritual warfare is literally taking people, taking souls back from the enemy one at a time. It's literally the great commission, right? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The way I understand authority is by a commanding officer of a ship. Commanding officers of ships have what's called standing orders. Those are orders that are in place all the time. If this happens, I expect you to do this. If this happens, give me a call. If this happens, I expect you to do this. Regardless of any of those orders, the last order given is the one that I will follow. The last order Jesus gave before he left this earth was to go. That's it. That's the last one. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This isn't, this isn't the end of the year, Dayspring. This is a continuation of the mission. All right. Let's pray. God, this is such a great responsibility that we've been given. But what better place than here? What better time than now? What, what better place than Dayspring to start to continue the good work that you've brought about through your son. Father, I just pray against any spirit of distraction, Father, on, 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 on us corporately, but also at an individual level. I, and I ask this for myself as well, too. Because, Lord, you know that you don't lay messages on people's hearts unless we're preaching to ourselves. Father, I just pray against any distraction that, that would distract us from your goals and your plans and your purpose for us. Father, I pray that as we would, would press into to the gifts and talents that you've given us, that we would know and understand that there is really one focus of all of those things. That the gifts that you have given us, the calling you've placed in our life, that is all about the salvation of souls. That we'd be willing to lay everything down, to risk it all for the gospel. Our comfort, our very lives are necessary. Father, we thank you for what you've, you've placed in your scripture. And Father, I repent, I repent for having, having taken, taken your word so casually at times taking it so casually that men and women died to bring us this word throughout history. Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that's working within each and every heart in this place. I pray that, 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 this, that this day that dreams and visions would, would pour through people's minds of what you have for them, what you're calling them to do. I, I pray that those who, who don't believe they have a calling would understand that we're all called to the same mission to restore your family. I think what you're doing through us individually. I thank you for what you're doing through Dayspring. I thank you for your son most of all. It's in his name I pray these words. Amen.